Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews 13, 9 through 16. You can find it in your bulletin as well as on the screen. Do not be led away by diverse or strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to all of you, and a big thank you to you, Brad, and the whole Pastor Search Committee. Love the big reveal this morning. We really have some exciting days ahead of us, don't we? And uh, look forward to that video this afternoon and watching that. And uh, it is, uh, I think you guys are really going to appreciate the work of our pastor search committee. Well, uh, to get into the sermon today, I don't know if, you know, if you followed that passage as Bridget was reading it, it's a little thick. I mean, there's uh, some really uh, interesting concepts in there. And what I want to do is I want to this morning make it very, very accessible to all of us here today. So... uh, Some years and years back, McDonald's came out with a hamburger called the Big Mac. And it had two two patties and and all, you know, meat patties and a whole bunch of other stuff on it. But inside that Big Mac was was something that was called secret sauce. There was a secret sauce of that Big Mac right in the thick of it. And I love that. And what I want to, we're going to be talking about grace today, how grace is food for the soul. And one of the things I'd like you to remember today is that really grace is the secret sauce of the Christian life. Grace is the secret sauce of Christian ministry, and grace is the secret sauce of Lake Baldwin Church. And so we're going to talk this morning about the, the riches of God's grace, and we're going to take, and we're going to highlight it in this passage. Now, to get into this passage, though, and to really prepare you for it, what I'd like to do is I'd like to remind you of the core values of Lake Baldwin Church. These core values define the experience that we want everybody to have when they come to Lake Baldwin Church. So if you're new here, if this is your first time here, if you've just started coming, this will let you know exactly what we are hoping that you experience here. And if you've been here for a long time, it'll be a reminder for you and a reminder of how we want you to continue to experience these things. So I want you to look at these phrases up on the screen. This is just to introduce our passage, but the first phrase you see up there is creative faith. 
creative faith, what we want for you when you come into Lake Baldwin Church, especially like today on your first Sunday, is to walk in here and realize that we worship a God who is majestic, who is powerful, and who is beautiful. Our faith is in a great, majestic God. In fact, to use the language of Hebrews chapter 12, we would add that this God is holy. He is perfectly holy, and he is awesome. And so everything you see us do as a church is focused on God and our dependence on God in prayer, trusting God for great things, even as we look to the future. So creative faith. Creative refers to the way that we want to build bridges to every age group and people in our culture with the unchanging truth of God's word. So that's the first thing. The second thing we want you to experience when you come into our church is what we call loving community. Now, we used to call this authentic community, but I think the word authentic is often uh, misused and misconstrued. But Jesus said that the mark of a Christian community is love. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So if, you've, if you come into this church First, to experience God, but second, to experience people around you that will welcome you, that will love you, that even as they get to know you, even as they get to know your foibles and your weaknesses, they will continue to love you. In fact, that's what last Sunday's sermon was about, Hebrews 13, 1 through 8, let love of the brothers continue. So loving community is our second thing that we want you to experience. But then thirdly, the third thing that we'd say is we would use the term gospel culture. And so we hope that you will discover once you are at Lake Baldwin Church for a while that underneath everything that goes on, underneath creative faith, underneath the loving community is that there is a reason, there is a power, there is a source of strength and that is the good news of the gospel. The word gospel means good news and it's the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And because that, what that means for all of us is that we are, though we are more sinful than we've ever imagined, we are more loved than we've ever dreamed. And so the gospel of grace transforms us from the inside out, and it's what makes possible a loving community. So we hope that you will always experience that in the water of everything we drink and everything we do in this church is the grace of the gospel. Then the fourth thing we hope you'll experience is that once you taste of the grace of the gospel, you will want to be transformed into the image of Christ. You'll want to grow. So spiritual growth is a big value. If you go out to the welcome table in the back, we have a booklet there. It's got the word grow on it. And it lays out a spiritual growth sort of, sort of plan. You are the CEO of your spiritual growth process, but our church provides avenues that you can take advantage of to grow spiritually. So we hope that you will not only come here and experience grace, but that that grace will inspire you to respond to the challenge of the Bible to become more and more like Jesus Christ over time in your life. And then finally, the last thing we hope that you'll experience at Lake Baldwin Church is is what we refer to as an outward face. We don't wanna be only inward looking. We don't want to be ingrown but we wanna care about the needy and the marginalized around us. We talked about that last week, about visiting the prisoners. We want to care about the world, what's happening in Ukraine, what's what's happening about getting the gospel to the whole world, and we wanna love our neighbors. So that's what we mean by an outward face. 
So when we say that the grace of the gospel is the secret sauce of Lake Baldwin Church, you'll notice it is right in the middle. It is right in the middle. When you discover the gospel and you start to taste the gospel, you start to want it more and more. It is like a Big Mac. It is like that secret sauce. You just want more and more to taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's because of the gospel that compels us to grow in our faith and it compels us in love to reach out to those who are not here yet. So that's the culture of Lake Baldwin Church. In fact, when you watch the video this afternoon, you will see these words referenced in that video. You will see that the candidate that has been nominated, Brian Lumshu Chan, by our pastor search committee, part of their rationale is his heart for those same values that we have as a church. So you'll see that in the video this afternoon. So we talk about grace. The other thing I want to do by way of introduction before we get into the body of the sermon is I want to take a few minutes to define what grace is according to the Bible. Because Hebrews 13.9 says it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And I don't want to assume that we understand that all of us understand the full extent of the biblical teaching on grace. The Bible reminds us about grace all the time. That is what changes our lives. But I want to define grace for you. And you're gonna see three phrases behind me up on the screen. The first one is that grace is undeserved favor. In other words, the way we become a Christian is by grace. Ephesians 2.8 says that we are, by grace we've been saved through faith and it's not because of our works. So salvation comes to us not because we have earned it by our giving, by our performance, by our attendance at church or anything. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace and it is undeserved. So a way of thinking about that is the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, we have God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ has, as we sang earlier, Jesus paid it all so that we could have the riches of forgiveness and eternal life and everything that God offers to us. That is salvation by grace, and we need to be rooted in that. We need to be solid on that. But I want you to see that, there, that grace is multifaceted in the scriptures. And so Hebrews 13, 9 says these words, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. In other words, every person in this congregation and within the sound of my voice, you have a heart and your heart needs to be strengthened by grace. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. That is, a big, that is the biggest understatement. We need to be desperate for grace in our hearts because it is grace that strengthens us to live the Christian life, to manage our challenges, and to do everything that God has called us to do. So grace is a powerful thing. There is saving grace that we experience when we become Christians, but throughout the Christian life, we have strengthening grace. And this passage talks about both of those when it uses the word grace. And so that's our introduction this morning. The core values, the culture of our church, but also the definition of grace so that we can understand a little bit more about what that means. This sermon is about grace, and so we're gonna go through, and you're gonna see three points as we almost always do in a sermon. They are derived from this passage that Bridget read for us, and I want you to be able to see where these things are in this passage. So we're gonna talk about these three things, the enemies of grace, the nourishment of grace, and the fruit of grace, or the result of grace. So now you can turn, look back in your bulletin at that passage, Hebrews 13 and verse nine. 
And I want to talk about, first of all, the enemies of grace, because this passage warns us about that. I want you to, this is, you guys, this, this passage, this verse, Hebrews 13:9, is so packed. I hope that all of us will remember the wording of Hebrews 13:9. Look at that in, the, in, your, uh, in your bulletin or in your Bible. The threats to grace or the enemies of grace. It says in verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now what is this verse talking about? Well, this verse has a warning for the readers of the first book of Hebrews. And he's warning them to watch out that they not be led astray or led away by diverse and strange teachings. Think of those two words, diverse and strange. Diverse means varied. It's the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis when it says in chapter 37 that Joseph had a multicolored dream coat. This, uh, this di these, there are diverse teachings that are multifaceted that will be a threat to your life and a threat to the church. And then it says that they are strange teachings. Those are, they are te teachings, they are strange because they are alien to the Bible. They are not taught in the Bible. So think about this. In your Christian life, there are enemies of grace that will erode grace in your life, and you need grace as the, if you will, the antidote to these things in your life. So I want to talk about this warning, not being led astray by diverse and strange teachings or doctrines or beliefs. When, uh, back in the 1970s, uh, after I became a Christian, my dad started to become interested in spiritual things. And, uh, but he was kind of new, and so he just sort of welcomed everything. And back in those days, back in the 70s, there was a famous man who was like a spokesperson for Bible-believing Christianity in America. He was an evangelist. His name was Billy Graham really famous at that time, and some of you might recall Billy Graham. Well, my dad was exploring faith and didn't have a lot of discernment. He wasn't really aware of these, uh, these diverse and strange teachings. And so one day, some people came and knocked on my dad's door. And uh, my dad opened the door, and they asked if they could come in to come inside and talk with my dad about their faith and about religion, and my dad led, let them in. It turns out they were, they were Mormons. Now, Mormons are very nice people, but they have diverse and strange teachings. My dad didn't know that, but my dad would listen to them, and then they'd come back the next week, and then they'd come back the next week, and my dad would listen to them. But finally, my dad just knew, he just knew somehow that what they were saying was wrong. And so one day, he didn't, he didn't know how, to, he, they were so smart, they could outthink him. And finally, my dad looked at them and he asked them this question. He said, does Billy Graham believe what you guys believe? And they said, no. And my dad said, well, then I don't either. I'll see you later. So that was his way of handling these diverse and strange teachings. Now, what were the diverse and strange teachings, though, that were going on in Hebrews chapter nine? Well, you can actually draw a, a straight line from these teachings to some of the cults today, like the Mormon church and other types of false teachings. 
But I want you to see what's in this passage because remember as Bridget was reading, there were some big words here that we could trip over and some ideas in many ways that are foreign to us, but it's really helpful that you understand the, the, the background of Old Testament legalism that was in this passage because that's the nature of the warning here. So look at what he says. First of all, at the end of verse nine, we're to be, our heart is to be strengthened by grace and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now what's, what is Paul, or not Paul, but whoever the writer is, what does he mean when he talks about how foods are of no benefit? Well, he's not talking about Big Macs, he's not talking about regular food that you eat to survive, but he's talking about religious feasts, perhaps like the Passover and other religious feasts, and so there was this, this belief that you, if you would have these external practices of eating the right food, it would make you holy. So the writer here is saying, no, that is, a, that is an alien teaching. That is a strange and diverse teaching, and it doesn't benefit those who hear. So he, he warns them about that. Look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So what is, what's he talking about there? The book of Hebrews was probably written before 70 AD, before the fall of Jerusalem, and so they still practice sacrifices there. So if you came from a Jewish background or an Old Testament background, and you became a Christian, and you're saying that, no, we don't need sacrifices anymore, all we need is Jesus, you would feel ostracized, you would feel left out. And so what the writer is saying here, you don't need those feasts and you don't need those animal sacrifices anymore, even though you're experiencing pressure to conform to these teachings. These, will these are contrary to grace and they are, these are contrary to the Christian life. And then he talks about outside the camp and the third thing that was part of this was the city of Jerusalem. These things happened in the temple at Jerusalem. So this was the nature, it was Old Testament legalism. Now there's nobody in this church that, at least I don't think, that is in danger of feasts that you believe will make you holy or you're eating you know, the meat of animals that were sacrificed to God or that you feel like you need to be in the temple in Jerusalem. I don't think anybody in this room has that pull. But I want you to see what was, what was underlying the, this religious pull that they were up against, these strange teachings. And what I want to let you know is what Jesus said about it, and that was it was self-righteousness. When Jesus got around the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. So Jesus was around all these Pharisees. It was this Old Testament religious these, these, all of these, this external religion. And so Jesus came along and he disrupted that. And he said the, the reason for all of that is self-righteousness or works righteousness. And so he dismantled all of that and Christianity was like what Jesus called new wine. It was a change. And so people had a hard time breaking from that. Now, the point I want to make though about this passage and about Jesus saying there, what he's saying is that these these varied teachings that are talked about here, these diverse teachings, it is false teaching 
is like a virus that mutates. There are variants of it that show up throughout history, and that is why even today we need to be aware of them. My dad needed to be aware of it in the 1970s. He didn't have all the stuff that he needed to counteract it, so he relied on Billy Graham. But if you go throughout the centuries, this idea of, the, of Phariseeism and legalism and self-righteousness righteousness, cropped up again in medieval Roman Catholicism, so that's why there was a Protestant Reformation. It was very bold of Martin Luther to say, here I stand, I'm no longer gonna be a part of this system of having to earn salvation. But you go further on throughout history and this variant, these, these variants of self-righteousness crop up in, for example, early 20th century fundamentalism. So you have that. But then you come to the modern day, and there's all sorts of teachings you can watch out for. But the point that I want to make for Lake Baldwin Church right now, and this is why we are desperate for grace, and this is why we need it, need it is the danger of self-righteousness, which underlines, underlies all false teaching. The danger of self-righteousness still exists in my heart and in your heart. So I want to read you a couple of quotes. For example, Trevin Wax said this about self-righteousness. He said, our moral compass is turned toward self-righteousness. So when Hebrews 13 warns about these teachings, what underlies them is self-righteousness, but they're attractive because we're earning our salvation and it, it, it feeds this need that we have for self-righteousness. He says, our moral compass is turned toward self-righteousness. Robert Murray McShane, who, who was from a couple centuries ago, he said, self-righteousness is the largest idol of the human heart. Self-righteousness is the largest idol of the human heart. So one of the things that I think that you and I need to be aware of and why we continually need the gospel is that there's something in each of our hearts that gravitates toward self-righteousness. I see it in my heart. I see it uh, when I'm prideful. I see it when I'm defensive. I see it when I miss with my wife. And I can, I've seen it happen in churches over the years. I thank God uh, for what Brad said about you all about Lake Baldwin Church because there is a kind of built-in gospel immunity that exists in many of your hearts. And I think that has allowed our church to largely not be led astray by all of sort of the, the self-righteousness and division that exists in our culture today. But we need, to be, we need to be wary of that. Self-righteousness crops up in all kinds of ways. Self-righteousness will destroy a marriage. Self-righteousness will divide a church. If you think back to any church split you've been a part of in the past, it is usually rooted in self-righteousness. And as I look at even how I've handled cultural issues over the past couple of years, there are plenty of times where I thought that I was smarter than other people or where I was condescending, whether it had to do with you know, uh, mask restrictions or whether it had to do with other cultural issues in our country. And I watch how a, a sort of new virus of self-righteousness has gripped the American church and has caused a ton, a ton of division. What, what self-righteousness does is it tends towards pride. The gospel of grace tends toward humility. 
So when I, when, I, when I think about this topic of strange and diverse teachings, I would, I would like to challenge each of us to always have within us, with us, a mirror. Where when we have a miss with another person, when we are judging other people, when we are condescending, when we are prideful, that we can look in the mirror and we would have the ability to say, you know what? That could be self-righteousness in my heart. I'm prideful or I'm defensive or I'm condescending or I need to win. It could be because I have a self-righteous heart. That is one of the most helpful, helpful things I've ever learned, that God calls me to be a chief repenter of the sin of pride and self-righteousness in my heart. And I think that would help a lot of marriages. I think it would help a lot of churches. I think it would help a lot of relationships. So that's a little long excursion triggered by this passage, but I wanted to identify that and really realize that this is why grace is so transformational and why we need it. Let's go on to the second point in the sermon so we can advance it there. The first thing we saw was the threats to grace or the enemies of grace, but I wanna talk about the nourishment of grace the nourishment of grace. Remember this passage says that we, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, and it says that we have, a, we have a, uh, an altar to eat at that others cannot eat at. It's talking about a spiritual feast that you and I have because of the grace of the gospel. Last week, Molly and I um, had the chance to babysit for our granddaughter, Wells, who lives here in Orlando with her parents, Luke and Mary Kate. So I love to be taken advantage of as a grandfather. It's so fun to go over and you know, feed Wells. Wells is gonna be two years old on June 20th. So I thought, well, this would be fun for us to sit down and, and just feed our granddaughter. So she was in this like high chair, and the food that was in front of her one was she had spaghetti, good old spaghetti. Kids love spaghetti, and she's just picking it up and eating it. And then the, in another section of her tray was this like flavored broccoli, but it was like a real tasty broccoli. And then in the other part of the tray, there were these raspberries. And I like to set a goal for myself, like can I get Wells to eat broccoli? I think, just think that'd be amazing if she could do that. And to eat these healthy raspberries that are just, you know, just take, you know, doing the spaghetti thing. And so what I would do is I would pick up a little piece of broccoli and she would open her mouth and I would just, just put it in there. And it would be so satisfying that, that Wells would eat that broccoli. And then I'd give her a, a raspberry and she'd pick up that raspberry and she had this, because her teeth are small, she takes this big raspberry and she just bites into it and it has half of a raspberry and just puts it back down. I go, yeah. She's eating the raspberry. She's getting spaghetti, she's getting broccoli, she's getting raspberry. Because what is happening is this food is giving nutrition to her body. And I get so excited about that because as she grow, grows, she's healthy, she's so delightful. And, and, and a lot of these things are acquired tastes and she really need those, needs those. So the Christian life, Christianity, provides a, a, total, a total alternative, total new wine, total new food to this legalistic Old Testament system. So look at what it says back to Hebrews 13. Let's look at the passage again, back to verse nine. Read it again. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. You see how grace is an outside force that comes into our life. 
not by foods, that is those foods of religious feasts which have not benefited those devoted to them, but look at what he says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, the tent refers to the Old Testament tabernacle. What would happen is the priests would have these animal sacrifices and they would feed upon these animal sacrifices at the altar in the tabernacle. And so the writer is saying here, no, we have an altar. We have a different altar. We have a whole different, a whole different system. It is a system of grace. It is a system not built upon externals, but the grace coming into the soul, coming into the heart and giving us nutrition. So he says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. In other words, those that are stuck with animal sacrifices, stuck in the tabernacle, stuck in the temple, relying on these feasts rather than Christ because they've rejected Christ, they have no right to eat at the spiritual altar of grace. Now, look closely at verse 11. This is really cool. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, what he's talking there is about once a year, there was what something known as the Day of Atonement. Throughout the year, the priest could eat the animal sacrifices, but on the Day of Atonement, they would, they would kill the animal, and the blood would be sprinkled on the altar, and then the animal the carcass would be taken outside the camp to be burned. And the Day of Atonement, what that, that whole thing pointed to Christ because you have a slain animal and the blood on the altar is speaking to God on behalf of the people, pleading with God to forgive them of their sins so that a holy God can forgive them. But then what would happen is the animal would be burned outside the city and outside the camp. That was the Day of Atonement, but we learn from this passage that it is really, that whole thing prefigured Christ, that Christ would be the end of that entire sacrificial system, and the Day of Atonement with the animal being sacrificed outside the camp, way back in Leviticus, pointed to the gospel, it pointed to grace, it pointed to what Christ would do for us. So, look at verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. If you go to Jerusalem, the old town is surrounded by a gate and outside of that gate was Golgotha. Outside of that was the, the hill of the skull. That was a place where the cross was raised and Jesus died outside the camp and it was a picture. It was a picture of his blood speaking to God on our behalf. It was a picture of him bearing our guilt, instead of the animals bearing our guilt, it's Jesus bearing our guilt. So it says Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. In other words, it, his blood does benefit us. It does sanctify us. It does make us right with God. And then he says in verse 11, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. In other words, leave behind those strange teachings. Even though you're drawn to them, even though the righteousness, the self-righteousness of your heart wants to prove that you can do all things to all these things to earn salvation. No, you have it because what Christ has done in his finished work on the cross. So go to him outside the camp. That's what he's saying to the Hebrews. Don't go back to the Old Testament. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't go back to an external religious system, but come outside of that 
and come to Christ. In verse 14, for here we have no lasting city. Jerusalem is no longer where it's happening. We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come in the future. It's totally different. And Christians have a feast and we feed upon Christ. Now, how do we do that? How do we feed upon Christ practically in our lives? This is one of the core teachings. If you were to go back and get that grow booklet, we have a whole section in there called, that we call the means of grace. The means of grace. How, do you, how is your, it says it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. How do we get these ex, this external grace into our lives? When you become a Christian, that is saving grace but you also need grace to live the Christian life and to continue to grow in your faith. You need the nutrition of grace for your soul. So here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there are primarily three ways that grace gets into your life. Three really practical ways. And you're gonna say, Mike, this is so basic, but it is really amazing. The first way is God's word. When we read God's word throughout the week or we hear God's word in a sermon, our soul is being fed by grace. That is why Paul said in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So when you, get, when you take the word into your life, it is feeding your soul. That's the first thing. The second thing is prayer. Prayer is a means of grace. Hebrews 4.16 already talked about this. It says, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So that's strengthening grace, sustaining grace. I have a friend who's going through a really hard time and that friend would say what is getting me through this right now is prayer, the opportunity to talk with God because we receive mercy and we find grace to help in time of need. So there's the word of God and there's prayer and finally there is fellowship. Fellowship, again, the importance of Christian community. First Peter 4.10 says that God has given all of us gifts that we are to be stewards of the manifold grace of God. When you participate in the church, whether it's serving in Splash or whether it's your giving or whether it's encouraging someone in a Bible study or just being a friend to them or praying for them, you are a steward of the manifold grace of God. When we have worship leaders up here leading us in worship, they have gifts given to them by God. They they, were, they are stewards of the manifold grace of God. You get grace when you get into Christian community and you support one another and you care for one another. I want you to notice a quote in your bulletin. It is a quote from David Mathis who wrote a book called Habits of Grace. And I want you to see this spelled out in this passage. We refer to this as the means of grace. Look at this quote by David Mathis in your bulletin. It says, God's regular channels of grace are three things. His voice, because he listens to our prayers, excuse me, gives us his word. His ear, because he listens to our prayers. And his body, that is the church, the fellowship of believers. The grace that sends our roots deepest, that truly grows us up in Christ, that prepares our soul for a new day, that produces lasting spiritual maturity and increases the current of our joy streams are the ordinary and unspectacular paths of fellowship, prayer, and Bible intake. 
That is our altar, that is the food, that is what strengthens our soul, that is our raspberries and our broccoli and our spaghetti, that is food for the soul, that is why God has called us to assemble together. And in a worship service, you get all three. You get the fellowship, you get the word, and you sing his praises and you get those prayers. This is how we grow, this is how we grow. So, final point in the sermon. Let's, get, let's, let's, let's land the plane right here. We've talked about the enemies of grace, we have talked about the nutrition of grace, but there's one more thing we need to see in this passage, and we need to see the fruit of grace. We need to see what, what grace does in our lives over time. That is, if we engage the means of grace, and we're taking grace into our soul as nutrition, what I wanna to suggest to you is that grace changes your life. It changes everything. Years ago, Molly and I were talking to some friends up in Virginia, some of our best friends, and the wife came up to us and she asked this question. She said, how do I change my husband? Because she wanted her husband to be a better husband. How do I change my husband? That's really a, you know, how do you answer a question like that? But here's what we told her. People change because of three ingredients, grace, plus truth, plus time. Grace plus truth plus time. So what her husband needed, but also what she needed, and what I continue to need, is I need to be part of a grace environment and a grace culture, and I need the truth of God's word, and I, and I, I need to allow it to change me over time. A lot of us want instant change, but that's not the way the Bible works. Spiritual growth happens as we take in grace over the years and it transforms us, but we have to engage the growth process. We have to expose ourselves to the grace that strengthens us. That why, that's why you don't wanna drift. That's why you don't wanna take a pass on fellowship. That's why you don't wanna take a pass on worship. That's why you don't wanna neglect the reading of God's word because those are the broccoli, that is the spaghetti, those are the raspberries that will cause you to grow and change your life. We, we actually overestimate how much we can change in one year, those of you that are struggling with your spouse and your marriage, but we also underestimate what God can do in five years as people engage the means of grace. And so I share all that because I want you to look at these last two verses, in verses 15 and 16. Notice the fruit of grace in our lives because we don't have Old Testament sacrifices anymore, but it says, no, we have something different. We have an altar, we have food, and look at what it says in verse 15. Through him then, that is Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What happens here? What happens, what grace does is it, it inspires us to worship. Worship becomes meaningful to you. You start to love God. We sang this morning, God, I love you. Jesus, I love you. What happens is that grace, as you take in the means of grace, your loves are changed and you offer to God not a sacrifice of animals but a sacrifice of praise. You can bring the sacrifice of your life and the sacrifice of your worship. And then look at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Remember, no more animal sacrifices, but when we do good, when we serve one another with such sacrifices, God is pleased with those things. But grace changes us, and it changes our loves, and it makes us want to do those things. Chad talked about Commission 127. This is uh, the sort of the partnership that we have related to foster care. Well, that has led 
uh, by Ashley Roberts and Chandler Michelson. And so they want to let us know that if people are interested in that, they can come to this lunch, they wanna do that. But if you ask the question, why would Chandler put her time into something like that? Why would Ashley put her time into something like that? You know why? It's not because they're trying to earn favor with God. They already have that because Christ suffered outside the camp for them. They do that because there was a day in the lives of those two women when grace got a hold of their hearts, and so they want to do good for others. I think of Scott Crocker. I think of all the people serving in Splash. I always use Scott as an example because he loves to teach kids in Splash, and he's done it for years. Why does he do that? Because there was a day in Scott's life when grace got a hold of his heart, and he wants to help other people grow. He wants to share the gospel with people. Last week, a group of us met with John Gilbert, a man in his 90s, the oldest person in our church, stage four cancer. We met with him, we served communion with him. If you ever wanna look at a person that grace has gotten hold of his heart decades ago, look at John Gilbert, look at the oldest guy in our church, and we meet with him. We pray with him, we share communion, we tell stories, we laugh with him, and then he stands up and gives Richard Hostetter an envelope that says, my offering. Why would he do that? It is because years ago, John Gilbert Grace got a hold of his heart and it changed him. And all these things, whatever you do, doing good for others or worshiping God, that is the fruit of grace. So I wanna encourage you. I wanna encourage you to put yourself in the pathway of grace on a regular basis and let grace change you. When I was uh, 10, 11, and 12 years old, I played football. We had a, a winning football team, but I'll never forget in August when our football team would be practicing on the field and I would be so, so thirsty, so thirsty. There'd be nothing left in me. I was totally dehydrated and dried out. And I remember on a hot day coming, coming off of that football field and turning on a cold faucet that was just, I was just draining all this water out and I would put my mouth underneath that cold faucet, and all this cold water would go through my system. And I love, I'll never forget that, and I wanna say to us here, that is what grace does for us. Grace, grace is something that, first of all, we need. We need to put ourselves in the path of grace, that is fellowship, the word, and prayer, and we need to take in that refreshment and that cold water because that will change us and that will enable us to live the Christian life, to give us the power to do it and the desire to do it. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to stop and take a moment and uh, praise you that grace is more powerful than varied and strange teachings. It is more powerful than the self-righteousness of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that as we even sing this next song, that as we sacrifice financially in our giving, that we would be inspired by grace. Lord, I pray that we would be a congregation that over not just the days and the weeks, but over the years, we would individually and as a church be shaped by your grace. Lord, continue to feed us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.